0: Christchurch, New Malden, 13th of October 2019, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, Abraham and the Covenant. Well, I have uh, seen it happen a number of times and it's always really moving. A couple decide that they will adopt a child and will welcome that child into their family. Now, I've seen four adoptions within uh, my own family. Three uh, of my cousins uh, still living are adopted, uh, and sorry, two of them still living are adopted, and I've had a a little niece adopted by my older brother not long ago. I've also seen a number of adoptions here at Christchurch. In fact, I've seen uh, two in just the last month, and they were here this morning at 9.30, and it's wonderful uh, welcoming them into the Christchurch family as well. But as well as being wonderful in its own right, adoption is something that also points us to something very special about our Christian faith. Namely, how all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ have been adopted into God's family. We've been made into his precious sons and daughters, and we've been given the glorious inheritance that comes with this. But of course, adoption, is also a complex process. It's one that rightly involves a lot of scrutiny on the family into which children are adopted. Those people supervising adoptions, they need to be really confident, don't they, about the nature of that family into which the children are being placed. These days, it's apparently seen as best for adopted children to know from as early as possible that that is the case, that they're adopted. But what comes with this as well, of course, is an equal emphasis on giving those children as much security as possible about the utterly central and special place that they have within that family that they've been adopted into. That through their adoption, they really do belong as fully and totally as it's possible to be. And applied to the Christian family that we're all part of, that is basically the message of Romans chapter four. It's what this chapter that we're looking at in Romans this week is all about. In previous weeks, we've looked at earlier parts of Paul's great letter to the Roman Christians and the problem that put the whole of God's covenant plan in jeopardy, the problem that Israel, the supposed bearers of God's solution to a sinful world, had turned out to be just as sinful As the rest of that world but then two weeks ago with Katie we saw or you saw I was away on holiday how God's righteousness his commitment to his covenant promises was at last fulfilled when he sent his son Jesus Christ to die so that all those who place their faith in Jesus could be forgiven and welcomed into God's one single united covenant family What was the nature of that family? How were those joining this family meant to understand it? If they hadn't previously been part of God's family, if they were Gentiles, non-Jews, who had become Christians, how were they to understand this family which they had joined? And if they had previously been part of God's family, those Jewish Christians, how were they meant to understand this new family that they joined? And what was its relationship with the people of Israel that they were part of? Now those may seem like first century questions rather unrelated to those that we face today, but actually they're not. One of the things that I hope we're all committed to here at Christ Church is this part of God's family that we represent constantly growing. This part of God's family that we represent constantly welcoming new members And if we're going to do that welcome as well as possible, and if we're going to be that one united family that we're called to be as well as possible, we too need to be clear about the nature of this family. We need to be really clear about what is the nature of this family that we're part of. We need to be clear about it both for the sake of new members, potential members, and actually ourselves as well. And in order to respond to this question, Paul deals throughout this chapter with one central character, as Katie has said, the character of Abraham. If you want to understand the nature of the family that you've joined through Jesus Christ, Paul says, you need to pay attention to Abraham. Romans, as we've seen throughout this series, is a letter that's all about God's fulfillment of the covenant, and that's why Paul at this point goes back to really the greatest covenant figure of all, other than God, in Abraham. And the first point that he makes is this. Abraham's family are declared righteous by faith. Abraham's family are declared righteous by faith. Now the very first verse of this chapter, and you may find it helpful uh, to look at the text, it's on page 1131. The very first verse of chapter four isn't actually translated very well in our versions of the Bible. It's probably the weakest translation of any verse, I think, in the whole of the New Testament. It's rather mangled in our translations. In the NIV translation, it says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? But a much better translation and a translation that does justice to the Greek words Uh, that are in that verse is this. What then shall we say? Have we discovered Abraham to be our ancestor according to the flesh? Have we discovered Abraham to be our ancestor according to the flesh? That's the question with which this chapter opens. The question is whether those who've become Christians, those who've been forgiven and incorporated into God's family through Jesus Christ, have they therefore joined the physical family of Abraham? That's the question that opens this chapter and which it deals with. Because that could happen. Before the coming of Jesus, Gentiles could join God's family. They joined God's family, usually by undergoing some sort of baptism, and if they were a man, they were circumcised, and then they lived under the Jewish law and they therefore, by that route, join God's family. And once they'd done those things, they became part of the people of Israel. So at the start of this chapter, it's asking, are Gentile Christians basically the same as that? Have they basically sort of become Jews through this process? And Paul's answer is an emphatic no. Gentile Christians haven't become part of Abraham's family according to the flesh they've become part of abraham's spiritual family they've become part of the true covenant family and they've done that paul says through faith and the way in which paul explains this further is going back to that key old testament passage that we had read to us earlier where god establishes his covenant with abraham that passage that was read to us earlier from genesis chapter 15 now genesis chapter 15 is the first passage that mentions god's covenant with abraham and after god has repeated the promises that he'd already made back in chapter 12 to abraham about giving him a land and a great family it says this key verse which paul quotes a number of times in romans 4. it says these words abraham believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it's from this basis that Paul argues in this chapter that faith in God's promises had always been the basis of belonging to God's covenant family. No one had ever belonged to God through circumcision, Paul says, or through the Jewish law. The sign of circumcision, Paul says, only came to Abraham much later on. Circumcision comes in chapter 17 of Genesis, some years after, maybe a good few years after God's covenant was established with Abraham. And in another of his letters, Galatians, Paul makes the point that the law came later still. The law came 430 years after Abraham with Moses. So those things could never have been the basis of belonging to God's covenant people. Now why is any of this important? It all can sound rather obscure, can't it? It's important because it shows that belonging to God's family is for absolutely everyone. If Abraham, or anyone else, was declared righteous through anything that they possessed that was exclusive, then they would have something to boast about. But because, Paul says, Abraham was declared righteous through his faith in God's promises, then any such boasting is excluded. God declares us forgiven sinners and members of his family, Paul says, as a totally free gift. It's a total gift of grace and therefore it is made equally to everyone. And both newcomers to the Christian family and old stages, like most of us, most of us here have been members of uh, God's family for donkey's years, haven't we? Both newcomers and old stagers need to hear this. And Paul is addressing both of them in this chapter. You see, it's very tempting for those of us who've been Christians for a while to want to give the impression, however subtly, to both outsiders and to newcomers to this church that we've built up a certain amount of credit with God. Very easy for us to want to give that impression. And it's very easy for those people to believe it, and to see us as rather more worthy of belonging to God's family than they are. Now, if that happens, it may give our ego a bit of a boost, but it will do absolutely nothing to make them feel more welcome into God's family, will it? The message that we need to give instead is that we're declared righteous by God and we're included within his family by nothing other than God's grace received by faith. That is our sole credit. That is everything that we depend upon. God's grace simply received by faith. Because when we do that, when we make that really, really clear, When we're committed to that being the message that we proclaim, not just with our words, but our whole behavior, we make it absolutely clear that this grace of God is open to everyone. If we give the impression, however subtly, that our credit rests in longevity or things that we've managed to contribute or particular standing or the way we've lived, then that's exclusive. If we can make it absolutely clear that our faith is entirely dependent upon God's grace, upon God's promises, and all we've done is to receive that grace with open hands, then that suddenly becomes something incredibly inclusive and inviting and attractive to others. So could we, Make this more the center of our witness to others? Can we make this more of our witness to both newcomers to this church, of which we have plenty, but also outsiders? The newcomers to this church need to know that they've got completely equal status because it's all about God's grace received by the faith that is open to everyone. And the outsiders, the not yet Christians, are not yet members of this church, they need to know how this can apply to them as well. So are there ways in which you can make it clearer to your non-Christian friends, to your perhaps non-Christian members of your family, that you are a Christian not because of anything at all that is superior about you, but simply because of God's grace? Because, as I say, there is nothing that will make it clearer that God wants them as well within his family. Nothing that will make this clearer to them than the clear message that it's all about God's free gift received simply through faith. And that links to a second great truth proclaimed by this passage, which is that Abraham's family is not just made righteous through faith it's therefore composed of many nations that's a emphasis of this passage as well and this is paul's basic answer to that question with which the chapter opened about whether christians have now become children of abraham in a physical or ethnic sense no says paul they haven't been admitted to an exclusive national club and the reason they hadn't is because god said to abraham i have made you the father of many nations and Paul at this point is quoting Genesis chapter 17 where God changes Abraham's name that was his original name to Abraham which literally means the father of many nations Abraham Paul makes clear is the father of both the uncircumcised who walk by faith and the circumcised that walk by faith and this is because God's family is now composed he says of a multiplicity of nations brought together by their common faith in Jesus Christ into one single, united family. And that's why God's family is never more powerfully displayed than when we see very different people united together as one family because of their common faith in Jesus Christ. That is the most powerful demonstration that ever takes place of the gospel when very, very different people come together and are seen to be one family because of their common faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing displays the gospel more fully or transformingly. That's why last weekend was so special here at Christchurch, as we celebrated Harvest together. It wasn't just that we hired an entertainer who hit the spot with those children, although I was pretty relieved about that, having uh, booked him, He was the first name that came up on the internet, and I took a bit of a punt. Fortunately, it came off. It wasn't just that people came up trumps in bringing all that amazing food for us to share together, although that food was amazing, and thanks to all those who brought it. The reason last week at Harvest was as powerful a demonstration as possible of the gospel is it because it was an occasion when very different people, if not different nations, although that was true to some degree, then certainly people of different social classes came together under the common banner of belonging equally to Jesus Christ. Now, not being naive about this. Of course, there were some there, perhaps a good number, for whom a personal response of faith to Jesus Christ is yet to occur. But that personal response of faith will have been made far more likely to occur through an atmosphere that in the name of Jesus Christ displayed so powerfully and wonderfully the unique unity that comes through the God who invites everyone into his family on precisely the same basis. Precisely the same basis of faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it was that inclusiveness, and I've said this before, that made the early church and the early Christians so unusual. It was that that made them so radical. It was that that made their churches so deeply attractive. And it's the very same church that we should be seeking to build today. So are we really committed to that vision? Are we really committed to being and displaying that we're that sort of church? Are we committed to playing the role that God wants us to play within it because there is a unique role for everyone here within that vision of being a welcoming and inclusive church completely built on the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ being open to absolutely everyone. It's a wonderful vision that God has called us to be part of and we can all play a role. There are crucial roles for all of us within that vision if we're prepared to respond to that calling. And how we're able to do this, how we're equipped to do this task, is really the third thing that this passage indicates about the nature of God's people, which is this. Abraham's family is brought into being by God's resurrection power. The reason why we sense something really special when God's multicolored, multinational people come together in his name is because what we're witnessing at that point is nothing less than a supernatural act of God. An act displaying the very same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what Paul says at the end of verse 17 in this passage when he says that Abraham is our father in the sight of God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. In the following verses, Paul goes on to speak about how God's resurrection power was needed to fulfill his promise to the aged Abraham and Sarah of a great family. That couldn't have happened, the start of the fulfillment of God's covenant promises, without a supernatural act of God's resurrection power. And Paul indicates that this very same resurrection power is displayed when people join God's family by believing in that creator God whose power was able to raise Jesus from the dead. We can often be lacking in confidence about the gospel message and how it can possibly connect or resonate with people in today's culture. We can think, how is this message of Jesus gonna really have an impact? How is it gonna take root? How is it, it going to make an impact on the people that live around us and seem to have no indication of any spiritual need for God whatsoever? We can feel the task is pretty hopeless sometimes, can't we? But the truth is that we don't have to look that far to see that we're surrounded by loads of fear Loads of loneliness, loads of pain, and particularly in middle class New Morden, loads of dissatisfaction out there in every class of people. And what these people need from us, I suggest, are two things, at least, that are both equally important. They need to hear a clear message proclaimed of God's grace that has come for them in Jesus Christ, a clear and confident proclamation of that message, and they need to see a community that exemplifies that this grace is for everyone. Now, when those two things occur together, the proclamation and the example, it can be overwhelmingly powerful. We do see people's hearts getting changed, and the reason we see people's hearts changing is because we're seeing at that point, Paul says, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead at work. The power of the creator God that brings life where there was none before. The power of a God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. What we're promised by God is access to this power. When we proclaim the good news that God has sent Jesus Christ as a gift of grace to everyone, and that we can all respond to that grace and receive it through the completely equal basis of faith, when that is presented to people, when that message is proclaimed, and particularly when it's accompanied by an example of a community that demonstrates the reality of what those promises are saying, it can be irresistible. When I preach at funerals, as I often do uh, for uh, non-Christians, the message that is proclaimed at those funerals is very often, very obviously, having an impact upon people. In fact, it may, may seem strange, but I totally and utterly believe this, the more awful the circumstances in which a funeral takes place, the more confident, paradoxically, I feel about the Christian message. Because the darker and the more awful the situation or the context is, the brighter that that message can shine, that God's love has come in Jesus Christ and taken on evil and stripped it of its power. And I see people, usually up at Kingston Crematorium, sometimes at Putney Vale, sometimes elsewhere, responding to that message, willing it to be true, wanting it to be something that they can respond to. And if we had uh, an easier way of integrating those people within a community, I believe it would take root uh, more fully. And we've had uh, Penny Deering and Dave Lavery, the two members of this church, that have joined as a result of funerals, But sometimes we can do the community quite strongly. Sometimes we can do the proclamation quite strongly. Ideally, the two of those things need to come together. Because God has promised us that his resurrection power is available to us. When God's word is proclaimed, particularly when the good news is proclaimed that evil doesn't have to triumph because God, in his great love, has sent that love into the world in Jesus Christ then hearts start to change and that's because God's resurrection power is at work. There's no one, however hardened, however angry they may seem, however anti-Christian they may uh, come over as, there's no one actually who is irresistible to the grace of God. We may have members of our own families, we may have friends that seem so hardened uh, to God and so angry uh, in response uh, to the call of his grace to them. But that's where our prayers have got to be directed by a confidence in God's resurrection power. If we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then God's power can bring about any Change can bring life where there was none before. And that's part of what Paul is saying in this passage. Many of us here, me included, have been members of God's family uh, for donkey's years. But it's good to be reminded about the nature of that family that we've joined. We've become joined to God's family entirely as an act of God's grace. We've received it through faith, and that faith is gloriously open to absolutely everyone. And We've got to try and make sure that we really do display that, that we make it really clear and really obvious. As I said earlier, it's very easy for us to sort of uh, want to give the impression that we're really quite accomplished, and possibly to give the impression that the basis of our membership of God's family rests upon uh, that credit. But if we can convey, particularly to our non-Christian friends and family, to outsiders of this church and to newcomers to this church, that our basis of our place in God's family rests entirely upon God's grace. Simply received through the faith that is open to everyone, then suddenly their membership of God's family becomes far more possible and far more attractive Because God does want this part of his family to be composed of as much diversity as possible. That's when we see God's resurrection power really at work. When people who would normally have no reason whatsoever to be together are together, enjoying fellowship and support for one another and being part of one one family. There's never a more powerful display Of God's resurrection power, the power that wasn't just shown on Easter Day, the power that has been let loose in the church so that we can live it out as part of being God's one united covenant family. Let's pray. Father God this is a hefty challenge that you make to us but we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to help us to respond. Lord God, would you fill this church with your resurrection power? Would you help us to display as fully and totally as possible that we're saved entirely by your grace, received simply by faith rather than any achievements or any credits that we ourselves have brought? We ask, Lord God, that this church, Christ church, would powerfully display your love we ask that you draw more people to recognize your grace invites them to be part of your family too and we pray for the members of our families or our friends who don't know you and Lord God we pray that somehow your grace and your invitation to them to be part of your family would be really powerfully displayed and we ask that you bring them into your family and shower them with your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name.